I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 111 for our Old Testament Scripture reading this morning. Here is a psalm that attests to the faithfulness of God to His people. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and in the congregation. Greater the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All of His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Now turning with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2 for our New Testament Scripture reading. Here Paul writes to Timothy, speaking of the faithfulness found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Timothy chapter two, beginning in verse eleven, Paul says this that this saying is faithful, it is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also shall reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now our sermon text this morning from Galatians chapter 5, that the fruit produced by the Spirit includes that of faithfulness. And against such things as faithfulness there is no law. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this word. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do confess as we come before you that we are in great need of illumination, uh, that we might understand what your word says concerning your promises and our great duties to you. We pray that your spirit would so work in us that we would be faithful to do all that you've commanded us to believe and to do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thinking through this week about some type of example of faithfulness as we've been working our way through the fruit of the spirit, uh, I don't think I could think of any illustration, at least in fiction or in television, in popular culture, uh, more fitting than to think of the faithfulness of Samwise Gamgee uh, to Frodo Baggins. If you have not read The Lord of the Rings, I commend it to you. If you're not much of a reader, then if you have 14 hours, I encourage you to watch the trilogy. Samwise, of course, is a half-wit 
and a halfling, a man of no consequence, a simple gardener, a man who's barely stepped outside of his own neighborhood, and yet he has been tasked with a great urgency to accompany his friend and his master, Frodo, to destroy the ring of power, an instrument of evil that is set to destroy all of Middle-earth and undo all of creation. As you read the story over the next 13 months, here the two embark on a great adventure where they flee fiery friends, they fell orcs, and they fight massive spiders. One of the most frightening scenes I've seen in any film. But for Sam, this is even more personal. More than simply defending his homeland or saving the world, it is an oath of loyalty that he has made to a friend and to protect his life. And over that next year, their friendship is put to the test. And though strained, though Samwise is even released from his vow, he nevertheless persists in fidelity to his friend. Far from home, without hope, without comfort, without aid, despite shortcomings, failures, and setbacks, Samwise Gamgee proves the ever-faithful friend. Paul here tells the church that a mark of true spirituality consists in such a quality. Faithfulness. Faithfulness to the very end. As we consider faithfulness as described by Scripture, we'll find the rich contours of this word. A description that both comforts us, and I think that it is a description that will stretch us as the Lord calls us to grow in faithfulness. Yet before we consider what it means to be full of faith, hence the word faithful, perhaps we would do well to consider the nature of faith itself. What is it that we are called to be full of? So three things for us to consider this morning. First, we'll consider that of faith. Then we'll consider faithfulness. And then finally, we'll consider the faithfulness of Christ himself. So faith, faithfulness, and the faithfulness of Christ. As we've been looking here uh, in this particular passage over the past several weeks, I think we would do well to remind ourselves that our Heavenly Father has appointed a particular end goal for each and every one of His children. That we all look like Christ. And so we should consider what it means when it says that the Spirit produces faithfulness in our hearts. I think it's worth noting here that the Greek has a very good word for faithfulness, pistos. You don't have to know that. And yet at the same time, if you were to look at this passage, you find that is not the word that is used here in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The word is pistis. word that doesn't mean faithfulness as much as it means faith. That's why if you're using the old King James Version, it actually says the fruit of the Spirit is faith. A lot of your modern translations will say that it is faithfulness, and I think faithfulness is a good translation, but we have to ask ourselves, why does Paul say here more, maybe more pointedly, that the, 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 the fruit produced by the Spirit consists in faith itself? I think that alone reminds us that faith is not natural. If Paul is saying that the Spirit produces faith, the very character and virtue and integrity that we've been looking at are things that do not come natural to the human man. It does not come 
natural to the person. This is something that the Spirit must work. And here Paul is saying that the Spirit produces faith in our hearts. Even our capacity to trust God is a result of the Spirit's work in the human heart. I think there's a tendency among many today, even many Christians, where we think of faith as my own personal contribution to salvation. As if I have it within my own reserve, my own reservoir to produce faith. And yet Paul is clear elsewhere that even faith itself is a gift of God. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this faith is not of yourselves. This faith is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast. Faith is required for salvation, right? We think of faith as a straw. It is the instrument, it's the means by which we drink deeply from the wellspring of salvation. And yet we find that the natural man, fallen humanity, is so dead in their trespasses and sins that the Spirit must work faith in us to even cause us to believe. You know, any of us could walk into a cemetery and tell, uh, you know, stand before any grave and say, get up. Not going to do any good. The, 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 the corpse doesn't have any power within its own body to rise itself up from the grave. A quickening is needing, needed for the dead to rise. And here we're confronted with that great conundrum. God requires faith for salvation. Faith is necessary, that we trust God and all his promises, and yet man is dead in his trespasses and in his sins, unable to believe. God requires it, yet we do not have it, and yet we find here the good news that is found in Christ, that the very thing that God requires is the very thing that he provides. God requires faith, and so he grants and bestows faith to the dead, that they might come to life. So it brings us to a question, how is it that faith comes? This is why preaching is so important. Faith comes through the hearing of the Word. When the preacher preaches God's word, the call goes out for all to repent and believe. This is the duty of every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. Yet, in the midst of that general call, as we confess, the Spirit so works efficaciously in the hearts of those whom he chooses, giving them faith that they might rise to new life and to cling to Christ and his promises When the word is preached, the spirit works in our hearts. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 compares the spirit's activity in preaching to the dawn of the opening week of creation. What is it that God did on the first day? He said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. Paul says, so too now through the ministry of the word, the light of Christ has now shined in our hearts. 
When the sinner comes to saving faith, it is seen as an act of new creation. It is something that is so powerful that Paul can only compare it to what happened the very opening week when the worlds were made. God requires faith, but because man is unable and unwilling to believe, he gifts faith and calls the dead to new life. He does this so that we cannot boast in ourselves, that we can parade about our faith in front of others and say, look what I have done for God. Because we're reminded even our faith, though it is ours, is something that God has graciously given. So that we might confess with Jonah himself that salvation is holy of the Lord from start to finish. This is why Scripture uh, speaks of Christ not simply as the perfecter of our faith, but that Christ himself is also the author of our faith. The one who writes and inscribes faith in our hearts. Yet at the same time, we have to recognize that faith is something that we really and truly do. It is not something that God does for us. God gifts us faith. He works faith in our hearts, but it enables it that, to be that we are the ones who truly believe. God does not believe for us. Rather, God works enabling us to trust Him, to rest in Christ and receive all the benefits that are given to us in our faithful Savior. That is why our confession of faith defines faith simply as this, resting in and receiving Christ. I love that definition because faith is not the accumulation of data. As I've said before, as if we're, our goal is to win a game of Bible Jeopardy. Faith is a personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, trust in His Word. So we've opened this service by singing how firm a foundation we have in God's written Word. Here we find the promises of God that we are called as our duty to trust in, that all the promises of God find the resounding yes and amen in one source, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all who are united to Christ become partakers of all that has been promised to Christ. Because Christ, having died and raised, did so for us that we might inherit all that is Christ's. Christ was condemned and bore our sins, and He was raised. 2 Timothy speaks of that. 1 Timothy 3.16 speaks of that as Christ's justification. Hebrews 2 speaks of Christ's resurrection as his sanctification, his deliverance from the corruption of death. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 speaks of Christ's resurrection as his adoption, not as saying that uh, Jesus had not been the Son of God, but now he is the Son of God raised in power as the God-man. And now all those benefits, justification, adoption, sanctification, are made ours as we trust in Christ who has died and was raised for us. It is through faith that we inherit the riches of heaven. Trusting in Christ and all that is promised to us through our union with Christ 
Faith is the instrument whereby Christ comes to dwell in our hearts, Ephesians chapter 3, so that when we trust Christ, it's not simply that the benefits of Christ become ours. More importantly, Christ himself is made ours, and we are his. So that we might sing with the song of songs, I am my beloved's and he is mine. His banner over me is love. It is a salvation that is not earned, but it is a salvation that is freely received. A salvation that is offered to the vilest of sinners to magnify God's magnanimity, His gracious benevolence to all who would trust in Him, so that faith becomes vital to the Christian life. And because faith comes only through the hearing of the Word, Preaching becomes vital to the Christian's well-being and happiness. I'm not simply saying this for job security. I'm saying this for your benefit. This is what the purpose of preaching is for, to strengthen your faith. I am not the one who can grant you the benefits of heaven. I am the one who has been appointed to remind you of the source of where those benefits derive. And they come from Christ and Christ alone. You see, experience tells us that our faith is weak and frail. When we look at our faith, if we were to be honest, we we would find that it is often tested and found wanting and lacking. It is inconsistent and assailed. And yet God in His grace and in His faithfulness has given us means to strengthen our faith to nourish our faith, to establish it, to refine it, and to preserve it like gold that goes through the refiner's fire. Those means are not extraordinary. Rather, they are what we call ordinary means by which God graciously strengthens our faith. And preaching is one of those ways. So also are the sacraments and prayer. Is your faith weak? Listen again to the promises of God found in the preaching of the gospel. Is your faith tired? Cry out to the Lord in prayer. He is a personal God who will promise to strengthen and uphold you. Is your faith exhausted? Is it hungry and thirsty? taste of his goodness in the supper. Do temptations assail you? Well, remember your baptism. You're no longer your own. You're no longer property of Satan. Baptism is God's mark, his indelible seal upon you that says property of Father, Son, and Spirit. As the Belgic Confession puts it, Christ himself is our Red Sea that has separated us Christ himself is the great gulf that has distinguished us from Satan's tyranny and from sins. And then I want you to remember this, that it is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves. It is Christ and Christ alone. Strictly speaking, faith does not save Faith is required. Faith is the instrument. 
And yet, technically speaking, it is Christ who saves through faith. Perhaps I could give an example. In Mark chapter 9, there's a father who comes to Christ pleading that Christ would save his son who has been possessed by demons. And Jesus turns to him and asks him a series of questions. And the man says to Christ, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And what is it that Jesus says? If you can... All things are possible for the one who has put his faith in me. What is the Father's response? I believe. Help my unbelief. Here we have a man who confesses how weak his faith is. There is a kernel of faith there, and yet it is one that has been plagued by doubt and struggle and anxiety and turmoil and depression over all the circumstances, the years in, over which his son has been assailed, even from birth, he says. The man confesses the weakness of his faith, and yet here we find that Christ shows himself faithful as the one who is not only able to save, but is willing. It is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith Who is it that you're trusting in? Our faith might be weak, but the object of our faith is strong. And so Christ works to perfect our faith. He he works to refine it, to actually strengthen our faith over the long haul as he stoops to dispel our doubts time and time again, showing over and over his faithfulness to us so that our faith might grow, so that we might rest in Christ all the more. That's why Hebrews 11 speaks of faith as an evidence and a testimony. Faith testifies to the faithfulness of God. Even Abel, as he is unjustly murdered, his blood cries out from the ground as a testimony to God who will judge in the world to come all injustices wrought against us. Faith is the exhibit A on the witness stand You think of the uh, great atheistic philosopher of the mid-20th century, Bertrand Russell, who claims that were God to exist and he were to stand before God, he would say, not enough evidence, not enough evidence, not enough evidence, and yet Hebrews 11 says, here is evidence A, B, and C, and it is the testimony of the saints. The very thing that we confess, a mighty fortress is our God, an ever-present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the mountains tumble and fall into the sea, though the seas boil and burn. Psalm chapter 46. Though the earth gives way, there is one who remains ever faithful still. Such is the nature of faith. It is a simple trust in the promises of God. And so as we consider the nature of faithfulness, we have to ask, what is faithfulness if it isn't faith persevering under trial? That is why I think uh, these modern translations that say the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness, I actually think it's a good translation. Because I think this is starting to get what Paul's looking at. This is a faith that perseveres under trial. Faith is faithfulness or I'm sorry, faithfulness is faith in full blossom and bloom. Faithfulness is a faith that perseveres. 
The great Southern Presbyterian James Henley Thornwell puts it like this, that faithfulness consists in making our actions correspond with our professions. But slightly differently, faithfulness is the full possession of one's profession. Faithfulness is putting your money where your mouth is. What is it that you truly trust in? And so when we say that somebody is faithful, what is it that we mean? It means we have one who is consistent in their character, one who is dependable by their word, who says something and sticks with it. He has to use the older lingo kept covenant. He is dependable. He is trustworthy. Second Thessalonians 1, Paul speaks of the man who shows good faith. In other words, here's a man who has not broken his pledge. He is full of faith. It is the man who is steadfast under trial, immovable in affliction, and has not deviated from the pledge that he has committed. Faithfulness under fire evidences a genuine faith. It is a faith that is tested through the fire. It is a faith that is forged and purified that bears precious fruit to the delight of our Savior. If you like a good tongue twister, practice this one. Our Father fortifies our faith through fire. That is the sum and substance of First chapter. First Peter chapter 1. He puts our faith to the test that we might look like Christ. So that on the last day when Christ appears, our faith would be presented before him as refined gold, as a great gem, as a precious jewel. In this life, our faith is never perfect, but the good news is it is always being perfected. Because we have the object of our faith is the one who is both the author and perfecter of it. The one who promises never to leave us. The one who promises by His Spirit to make us look more like Christ. And we're reminded once again that the great reason that God accepts us is not because our faith is perfect, but because He is faithful. And this is why we have to reflect on the faithfulness of Christ. This is the very mold, this is the cast to which we have been put into as the Spirit works to burn away the dross, to make us conformed to look like our precious Savior. And as the Scriptures speak of the faithfulness of Christ, it tells us that Christ is faithful to His Word and all that He promises to do, He never fails to deliver, not once. That He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it to the very end. Christ is the author of our faith, so He begins that work of faith in our hearts because we cannot produce it in and of ourselves. He is the perfecter of our faith, and so will preserve it. He is the object of our faith, and so He will strengthen our faith. And He is the finisher of our faith, and He will bring it to completion. Christ is the author and refiner, the perfecter, and the finisher of our faith. From start to finish, it is a work that is holy of the Lord's. 
As their great prophet, he is the faithful witness that brings the glad tidings of salvation for all who would receive him by faith. As our great high priest, when we stumble and fall, he is faithful to plead our case, to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he is our great king, so that when temptations assault us and trials assail us, he is faithful to preserve and to protect us, and faithful to vindicate us when we have been wronged. This is why Paul tells Timothy that even when we remain faithless, He remains ever faithful. When our faithless hearts grow weak, God declares Himself to be greater than our hearts, that He is the strength of our heart, and He is our portion forever. See, faithfulness forms the foundation of the firmest friendships. And that is what the Spirit works to produce in us, that we would show faithfulness not only to God, but also to one another. And the communion bond that we've been forged into in our baptism. As there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, so there is one body. And so we are called to fidelity to one another. To be faithful, to pray for one another, to care for one another in uh, in our needs. Be it material or spiritual, to care for one another faithfully. And confronting one another graciously when we are wronged or when we are in the wrong. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs says. We are to exhibit that great strength and faithfulness that you see in fiction with Samwise Gamgee, but even more so in nonfiction with Jesus, who is the greatest friend to sinners. And he calls us to reflect that same virtue. Because it is not our own faithfulness that grounds our relationship with the Lord. It is Christ's faithfulness to us. As Hebrews 2 tells us, For he, having been made as we are, he is the faithful high priest who knows all of our frailties and weaknesses because he too has endured temptation. But where we have failed, he succeeded as he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so he knows what it is like to resist temptation. He knows what it is like more than we do. So he is full of grace so that when we are in need of strength in the midst of temptation, he is able to give grace. And when we fail, he is the faithful high priest who is faithful to bestow mercy, to pick us up when we have fallen, to wash us of our wounds, and to make us whole. What a friend we have in Jesus. This is the message which the church has been entrusted to pass down faithfully. The faithfulness of God, that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now Christ has given us His Spirit to make us look like Him. May we be faithful and diligent to pursue faithfulness in mirroring our Savior's faithfulness to us. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness to us and ask that your spirit would work in our hearts to trust you more, that we might look like you more, that we might reflect you to a dying world about us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.